Part One, Chapter Five of the Idiot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Eva M. Martin. Part One, Chapter Five. Mrs. General Yepanchin was a proud woman by nature. What must her feelings have been when she heard that Prince Muishkin, the last of his and her line, had arrived in beggar's guise, a wretched idiot, a recipient of charity, all of which details the general gave out for greater effect. He was anxious to steal her interest at the first swoop, so as to distract her thoughts from other matters nearer home. Mrs. Yepanchin was in the habit of holding herself very straight, and staring before her, without speaking, in moments of excitement. She was a fine woman of the same age as her husband, with a slightly hooked nose, a high, narrow forehead, thick hair turning a little grey, and a sallow complexion. Her eyes were grey, and wore a very curious expression at times. She believed them to be most effective, a belief that nothing could alter. "'What? Receive him? Now? At once?' asked Mrs. Yepanchin, gazing vaguely at her husband as he stood fidgeting before her. "'Oh, dear me, I assure you there is no need to stand on ceremony with him,' the general explained hastily. He is quite a child, not to say a pathetic-looking creature. He has fits of some sort, and has just arrived from Switzerland, straight from the station, dressed like a German and without a farthing in his pocket. I gave him twenty-five roubles to go on with, and am going to find him some easy place in one of the government offices. I should like you to ply him well with the victuals, my dears, for I should think he must be very hungry." "'You astonish me,' said the lady, gazing as before. "'Fits, and hungry, too. What sort of fits? Oh, they don't come on frequently. Besides, he's a regular child, though he seems to be fairly educated. I should like you, if possible, my dears, the general added, making slowly for the door, to put him through his paces a bit, and see what he is good for. I think you should be kind to him. It is a good deed, you know. However, just as you like, of course. But he is a sort of relation, remember, and I thought it might interest you to see the young fellow, seeing that this is so. Oh, of course, mamma, if we needn't stand on ceremony with him, we must give the poor fellow something to eat after his journey, especially as he has not the least idea where to go," said Alexandra, the eldest of the girls. Besides, he's quite a child. We can entertain him with a little hide-and-seek in case of need," said Adelaida. Hide-and-seek? What do you mean? inquired Mrs. Yepanchin. "'Oh, do stop pretending, mamma! cried Aglaya, in vexation. "'Send him up, father. Mother allows!' The general rang the bell and gave orders that the prince should be shown in. "'Only on condition that he has a napkin under his chin at lunch, then,' said Mrs. Yepanchin. 
and let Fyodor or Mavra stand behind him while he eats. Is he quiet when he has these fits? He doesn't show violence, does he? On the contrary, he seems to be very well brought up. His manners are excellent, but here he is himself. Here you are, prince. Let me introduce you, the last of the Mushkins, a relative of your own, my dear, or at least of the same name. Receive him kindly, please. They'll bring in lunch directly, prince. You must stop and have some, but you must excuse me. I'm in a hurry. I must be off. We all know where you must be off to, said Mrs. Yepanchin in a meaning voice. Yes, yes, I must hurry away. I'm late. Look here, dears. Let him write you something in your albums. You've no idea what a wonderful calligraphist he is, wonderful talent. He has just written out, Abbot Pafnute signed this for me. Well, au revoir. Stop a minute. Where are you off to? Who is this abbot? cried Mrs. Yepanchin to her retreating husband in a tone of excited annoyance. Yes, my dear, it was an old abbot of that name. I must be off to see the Count. He's waiting for me. I'm late. Good-bye. Au revoir, Prince. And the general bolted at full speed. Oh, yes, I know what Count you're going to see, remarked his wife in a cutting manner, as she turned her angry eyes on the Prince. Now then, what's all this about? What abbot? Who's Pafnute? she added brusquely. Mamma said Alexandra, shocked at her rudeness. Aglaya stamped her foot. "'Nonsense! Let me alone!' said the angry mother. "'Now then, Prince, sit down here. No nearer, come nearer the light. I want to have a good look at you. So now then, who is this abbot?' "'Abbot Pafnute,' said our friend, seriously and with deference. "'Pafnute, yes, and who was he?' Mrs. Yepanchin put these questions hastily and brusquely, and when the prince answered she nodded her head sagely at each word he said. "'The abbot Pafnute lived in the fourteenth century,' began the prince. He was in charge of one of the monasteries on the Volga, about where our present Kostroma government lies. He went to Oriol, and helped in the great matters then going on in the religious world. He signed an edict there, and I have seen a print of his signature. It struck me, so I copied it. When the general asked me in his study to write something for him to show my handwriting, I wrote, The abbot Pafnute signed this, in the exact handwriting of the abbot. The general liked it very much, and that's why he recalled it just now. Aglaya, make a note of Pafnute, or we shall forget him. Hmm. And where is this signature? I think it was left on the general's table. Let it be sent for at once. Oh, I'll write you a new one in half a minute, said the prince, if you like. Of course, mamma, said Alexandra, but let's have lunch now. We are all hungry. Yes, come along, prince, said the mother. Are you very hungry? Yes, I must say that I am pretty hungry, thanks very much. I'd like to see that you know your manners, and you are by no means such a person as the general thought fit to describe you. Come along. 
"'You sit here opposite to me,' she continued. "'I wish to be able to see your face. "'Alexandra, Adelaida, look after the prince. "'He doesn't seem so very ill, does he? "'I don't think he requires a napkin under his chin after all. "'Are you accustomed to having one on, prince?' Formerly, when I was seven years old or so, I believe I wore one, but now I usually hold my napkin on my knee when I eat. Of course, of course. And about your fits? Fits? asked the prince, slightly surprised. I very seldom have fits nowadays. I don't know how it may be here, though. They say the climate may be bad for me. He talks very well, you know said Mrs. Yepanchin, who still continued to nod at each word the prince spoke. I really did not expect it at all. In fact, I suppose it was all stuff and nonsense on the general's part as usual. Eat away, prince, and tell me where you were born and where you were brought up. I wish to know all about you. You interest me very much. The prince expressed his thanks once more and eating heartily the while, recommenced the narrative of his life in Switzerland, all of which we have heard before. Mrs. Yepanchin became more and more pleased with her guest. The girls, too, listened with considerable attention. In talking over the question of relationship, it turned out that the prince was very well up in the matter, and knew his pedigree off by heart. It was found that scarcely any connection existed between himself and Mrs. Yepanchin, but the talk and the opportunity of conversing about her family tree gratified the latter exceedingly, and she rose from the table in great good humour. "'Let's all go to my boudoir,' she said, "'and they shall bring some coffee in there. "'That's the room where we all assemble and busy ourselves as we like best,' she explained. Alexandra, my eldest here, plays the piano, or reads, or sews. Adelaida paints landscapes and portraits, but never finishes any. And Aglaya sits and does nothing. I don't work too much, either. Here we are now. Sit down, Prince, near the fire, and talk to us. I want to hear you relate something. I wish to make sure of you first, and then tell my old friend, Princess Bielokonsky, about you. I wish you to know all the good people and to interest them. Now then, begin. Mamma, it's rather a strange order, that, said Adelaida, who was fussing among her paints and paint-brushes at the easel. Aglaya and Alexandra had settled themselves with folded hands on a sofa evidently meaning to be listeners. The prince felt that the general attention was concentrated upon himself. "'I should refuse to say a word if I were ordered to tell a story like that,' observed Aglaya. "'Why, what's there strange about it? He has a tongue. Why shouldn't he tell us something? I want to judge whether he is a good storyteller. Anything you like, prince.' how you liked Switzerland, what was your first impression, anything. You'll see, he'll begin directly and tell us all about it beautifully." "'The impression was forcible,' the prince began. "'There, you see, girls,' said the impatient lady, "'he has begun, you see.' "'Well, then, let him talk, mamma," said Alexandra. 
this prince is a great humbug and by no means an idiot she whispered to aglaya oh i saw that at once replied the latter i don't think it at all nice of him to play a part what does he wish to gain by it i wonder my first impression was a very strong one repeated the prince when they took me away from russia i remember i passed through many german towns and looked out of the windows but did not trouble so much as to ask questions about them this was after a long series of fits i always used to fall into a sort of torpid condition after such a series and lost my memory almost entirely and though i was not altogether without reason at such times yet i had no logical power of thought this would continue for three or four days and then i would recover myself again i remember my melancholy was intolerable i felt inclined to cry i sat and wondered and wondered uncomfortably the consciousness that everything was strange weighed terribly upon me i could understand that it was all foreign and strange i recollect i awoke from this state for the first time at Baal one evening the bray of a donkey aroused me a donkey in the town market i saw the donkey and was extremely pleased with it and from that moment my head seemed to clear a donkey how strange yet it is not strange any one of us might fall in love with a donkey it happened in mythological times said madame epanchin looking wrathfully at her daughters who had begun to laugh go on prince since that evening i have been specially fond of donkeys i began to ask questions about them for i had never seen one before and i at once came to the conclusion that this must be one of the most useful of animals strong willing patient cheap and thanks to this donkey i began to like the whole country i was travelling through and my melancholy passed away all this is very strange and interesting said mrs epanchin now let's leave the donkey and go on to other matters what are you laughing at aglaya and you too adelaida the prince told us his experiences very cleverly he saw the donkey himself and what have you ever seen you have never been abroad i have seen a donkey though mamma said aglaya and i've heard one said adelaida and all three of the girls laughed out loud and the prince laughed with them well it's too bad of you said mamma you must forgive them prince they are good girls i am very fond of them though i often have to be scolding them they are all as silly and mad as march hares oh i shouldn't they laugh said the prince i shouldn't have let the chance go by in their place i know but i stick up for the donkey all the same he's a patient good-natured fellow are you a patient man prince i ask out of curiosity said mrs epanchin all laughed again oh that wretched donkey again i see cried the lady i assure you prince i was not guilty of the least insinuation oh i assure you i take your word for it and the prince continued laughing merrily 
I must say it's very nice of you to laugh. I see you really are a kind-hearted fellow, said Mrs. Yepanchin. I'm not always kind, though. I am kind myself, and always kind, too, if you please, she retorted unexpectedly. And that is my chief fault, for one ought not to be always kind. I'm often angry with these girls and their father, but the worst of it is I'm always kindest when I am cross. I was very angry just before you came, and Aglaya there read me a lesson. Thanks, Aglaya, dear. Come and kiss me. There, that's enough, she added as Aglaya came forward and kissed her lips and then her hand. Now then, go on, prince. Perhaps you can think of something more exciting than about the donkey, hm? I must say again, I can't understand how you can expect anyone to tell you stories straight away so, said Adelaida. I know I never could. Yes, but the prince can, because he is clever. Cleverer than you are by ten or twenty times, if you like. There, that's so, prince. And seriously, let's drop the donkey now. What else did you see abroad besides the donkey? Yes, but the prince told us about the donkey very cleverly all the same, said Alexandra. I have always been most interested to hear how people go mad and get well again, and that sort of thing, especially when it happens suddenly. Quite so, quite so, said Mrs. Yepanchin, delighted. I see you can be sensible now and then, Alexandra. You were speaking of Switzerland, Prince. Yes, we came to Lucerne, and I was taken out in a boat. I felt how lovely it was but the loveliness weighed upon me somehow or other, and made me feel melancholy. "'Why?' asked Alexandra. "'I don't know. I always feel like that when I look at the beauties of nature for the first time. But then I was ill at that time, of course.' "'Oh, but I should like to see it,' said Adelaida. "'And I don't know when we shall ever go abroad.' I've been two years looking out for a good subject for a picture. I've done all I know. The North and South I know by heart, as our poet observes. Do help me to a subject, Prince. Oh, but I know nothing about painting. It seems to me one only has to look and paint what one sees. But I don't know how to see. Nonsense! What rubbish you talk! the mother struck in not know how to see open your eyes and look if you can't see here you won't see abroad either tell us what you saw yourself prince yes that's better said adelaida the prince learned to see abroad oh i hardly know you see i only went to restore my health i don't know whether i learned to see exactly i was very happy however nearly all the time happy you can be happy cried aglaya then how can you say you did not learn to see i should think you could teach us to see oh do teach us laughed adelaida oh i can't do that said the prince laughing too i lived almost all the while in one little swiss village what can i teach you 
at first i was only just not absolutely dull then my health began to improve then every day became dearer and more precious to me and the longer i stayed the dearer became the time to me so much so that i could not help observing it but why this was so it would be difficult to say so that you didn't care to go anywhere else well at first i did i was restless i didn't know however i should manage to support life you know there are such moments especially in solitude there was a waterfall near us such a lovely thin streak of water like a thread but white and moving it fell from a great height but it looked quite low and it was half a mile away though it did not seem fifty paces i loved to listen to it at night but it was then that i became so restless sometimes i went and climbed the mountain and stood there in the midst of the tall pines all alone in the terrible silence with our little village in the distance and the sky so blue and the sun so bright and an old ruined castle on the mountainside far away i used to watch the line where earth and sky met and longed to go and seek there the key of all mysteries thinking that i might find there a new life perhaps some great city where life should be grander and richer and then it struck me that life may be grand enough even in a prison i read that last most praiseworthy thought in my manual when i was twelve years old said aglaya all this is pure philosophy said adelaida you are a philosopher prince and have come here to instruct us in your views perhaps you are right said the prince smiling i think i am a philosopher perhaps and who knows perhaps i do wish to teach my views of things to those i meet with your philosophy is rather like that of an old woman we know who is rich and yet does nothing but try how little she can spend she talks of nothing but money all day your great philosophical idea of a grand life in a prison and your four happy years in that swiss village are like this rather said aglaya as to life in a prison of course there may be two opinions said the prince i once heard the story of a man who lived twelve years in a prison i heard it from the man himself he was one of the persons under treatment with my professor he had fits and attacks of melancholy then he would weep and once he tried to commit suicide his life in prison was sad enough his only acquaintances were spiders and a tree that grew outside his grating but i think i had better tell you of another man i met last year there was a very strange feature in this case strange because of its extremely rare occurrence this man had once been brought to the scaffold in company with several others and had had the sentence of death by shooting passed upon him for some political crime twenty minutes later he had been reprieved and some other punishments substituted but the interval between the two sentences twenty minutes or at least a quarter of an hour had been passed in the certainty that within a few minutes he must die 
I was very anxious to hear him speak of his impressions during that dreadful time, and I several times inquired of him as to what he thought and felt. He remembered everything with the most accurate and extraordinary distinctness, and declared that he would never forget a single iota of the experience. About twenty paces from the scaffold, where he had stood to hear the sentence, were three posts fixed in the ground, to which to fasten the criminals, of whom there were several. The first three criminals were taken to the posts, dressed in long white tunics with white caps drawn over their faces, so that they could not see the rifles pointed at them. Then a group of soldiers took their stand opposite to each post. My friend was the eighth on the list, and therefore he would have been among the third lot to go up. A priest went about among them with a cross, and there was about five minutes of time left for him to live. He said that those five minutes seemed to him to be a most interminable period, an enormous wealth of time. He seemed to be living in these minutes so many lives that there was no need as yet to think of that last moment, so that he made several arrangements, dividing up the time into portions, one for saying farewell to his companions, two minutes for that, then a couple more for thinking over his own life and career, and all about himself, and another minute for a last look around. He remembered having divided his time like this quite well. While saying good-bye to his friends, he recollected asking one of them some very usual everyday question, and being much interested in the answer. Then, having bade farewell, he embarked upon those two minutes which he had allotted for looking into himself. He knew beforehand what he was going to think about. He wished to put it to himself as quickly and clearly as possible, that here was he, a living, thinking man, and that in three minutes he would be nobody. Or if somebody or something, then what and where? He thought he would decide this question once and for all in these last three minutes. A little way off there stood a church, and its gilded spire glittered in the sun. He remembered staring stubbornly at this spire, and at the rays of light sparkling from it. He could not tear his eyes from these rays of light. He got the idea that these rays were his new nature, and that in three minutes he would become one of them, amalgamated somehow with them. The repugnance to what must ensue almost immediately, and the uncertainty were dreadful, he said, but worst of all was the idea, what should I do if I were not to die now? What if I were to return to life again? What an eternity of days, and all mine! How I should grudge and count up every minute of it, so as not to waste a single instant! He said that this thought weighed so upon him, and became such a terrible burden upon his brain, that he could not bear it, and wished they would shoot him quickly and have done with it. The prince paused, and all waited, expecting him to go on again and finish the story. "'Is that all?' asked Aglaya. "'All, yes,' said the prince, emerging from a momentary reverie. 
and why did you tell us this oh i happened to recall it that's all it fitted into the conversation you probably wish to deduce prince said alexandra that moments of time cannot be reckoned by money value and that sometimes five minutes are worth priceless treasures all this is very praiseworthy but may i ask about this friend of yours who told you the terrible experience of his life he was reprieved you say in other words they did restore him to that eternity of days what did he do with these riches of time did he keep careful account of his minutes oh no he didn't i asked him myself he said that he had not lived a bit as he had intended and had wasted many and many a minute very well then there's an experiment and the thing is proved one cannot live and count each moment say what you like but one cannot that is true said the prince i have thought so myself and yet why shouldn't one do it you think then that you could live more wisely than other people said aglaya i have had that idea and you have it still yes i have it still the prince replied he had contemplated aglaya until now with a pleasant though rather timid smile but as the last words fell from his lips he began to laugh and looked at her merrily you are not very modest said she but how brave you are said he you are laughing and i that man's tale impressed me so much that i dreamt of it afterwards yes i dreamt of those five minutes he looked at his listeners again with that same serious searching expression you are not angry with me he asked suddenly and with a kind of nervous hurry although he looked them straight in the face why should we be angry they cried only because i seem to be giving you a lecture all the time at this they laughed heartily please don't be angry with me continued the prince i know very well that i have seen less of life than other people and have less knowledge of it i must appear to speak strangely sometimes he said the last words nervously you say you have been happy and that proves you have lived not less but more than other people why make all these excuses interrupted aglaya in a mocking tone of voice besides you need not mind about lecturing us you have nothing to boast of with your quietism one could live happily a hundred years at least one might show you the execution of a felon or show you one's little finger you could draw a moral from either and be quite satisfied that sort of existence is easy enough i can't understand why you always fly into a temper said mrs epanchin who had been listening to the conversation and examining the faces of the speakers in turn i do not understand what you mean what has your little finger to do with it the prince talks well though he is not amusing he began all right but now he seems sad never mind mamma prince i wish you had seen an execution said aglaya i should like to ask you a question about that if you had i have seen an execution said the prince 
you have cried aglaya i might have guessed it that's a fitting crown to the rest of the story if you have seen an execution how can you say you lived happily all the while but is there capital punishment where you were asked adelaida i saw it at lyon schneider took us there and as soon as we arrived we came in for that well and did you like it very much was it very edifying and instructive asked aglaya no i didn't like it at all and was ill after seeing it but i confess i stared as though my eyes were fixed to the sight i could not tear them away i too should have been unable to tear my eyes away said aglaya they do not at all approve of women going to see an execution there the women who do go are condemned for it afterwards in the newspapers that is by contending that it is not a sight for women they admit that it is a sight for men i congratulate them on the deduction i suppose you quite agree with them prince tell us about the execution put in adelaida i would much rather not just now said the prince a little disturbed and frowning slightly you don't seem to want to tell us said aglaya with a mocking air no the thing is i was telling all about the execution a little while ago and whom did you tell about it the man-servant while i was waiting to see the general our man-servant exclaimed several voices at once yes the one who waits in the entrance hall a greyish red-faced man the prince is clearly a democrat remarked aglaya well if you could tell alexey about it surely you can tell us too i do so want to hear about it repeated adelaida just now i confess began the prince with more animation when you asked me for a subject for a picture i confess i had serious thoughts of giving you one i thought of asking you to draw the face of a criminal one minute before the fall of the guillotine while the wretched man is still standing on the scaffold preparatory to placing his neck on the block what his face only his face asked adelaida that would be a strange subject indeed and what sort of picture would that make oh why not the prince insisted with some warmth when i was in baal i saw a picture very much in that style i should like to tell you about it i will some time or other it struck me very forcibly oh you shall tell us about the baal picture another time now we must have all about the execution said adelaida tell us about that face as it appeared to your imagination how should it be drawn just the face alone do you mean it was just a minute before the execution began the prince readily carried away by the recollection and evidently forgetting everything else in a moment just at the instant when he stepped off the ladder onto the scaffold he happened to look in my direction i saw his eyes and understood all at once but how am i to describe it i do so wish you or somebody else could draw it you if possible i thought at the time what a picture it would make you must imagine all that went before of course all all he had lived in the prison for some time 
and had not expected that the execution would take place for at least a week yet. He had counted on all the formalities and so on taking time. But it so happened that his papers had been got ready quickly. At five o'clock in the morning he was asleep. It was October, and at five in the morning it was cold and dark. The governor of the prison comes in on tiptoe and touches the sleeping man's shoulder gently. He starts up. What is it? he says. The execution is fixed for ten o'clock. He was only just awake and would not believe it at first, but began to argue that his papers would not be out for a week and so on. When he was wide awake and realised the truth, he became very silent and argued no more, so they say. But after a bit he said, It comes very hard on one so suddenly. And then he was silent again and said nothing. The three or four hours went by, of course, in necessary preparations. The priest, breakfast, coffee, meat and some wine they gave him. Doesn't it seem ridiculous? And yet I believe these people give them a good breakfast out of pure kindness of heart, and believe that they are doing a good action. Then he is dressed, and, and then begins the procession through the town to the scaffold. I think he too must feel that he has an age to live still, while they cart him along. Probably he thought on the way, Oh, I have a long, long time yet, three streets of life yet. When we've passed this street there'll be that other one, and then that one where the baker's shop is on the right. And when shall we get there? It's ages, ages. Around him are crowds shouting, yelling, ten thousand faces, twenty thousand eyes. All this has to be endured, and especially the thought, here are ten thousand men, and not one of them is going to be executed and yet I am to die. Well, all that is preparatory. At the scaffold there is a ladder, and just there he bursts into tears. And this was a strong man, and a terribly wicked one, they say. There was a priest with him the whole time, talking. Even in the cart as they drove along he talked and talked. Probably the other heard nothing. He would begin to listen now and then, and at the third word or so he had forgotten all about it. At last he began to mount the steps. His legs were tied so that he had to take very small steps. The priest, who seemed to be a wise man, had stopped talking now, and only held the cross for the wretched fellow to kiss. At the foot of the ladder he had been pale enough, but when he set foot on the scaffold at the top, his face suddenly became the colour of paper, positively like white note-paper. His legs must have become suddenly feeble and helpless, and he felt a choking in his throat. You know the sudden feeling one has in moments of terrible fear, when one does not lose one's wits, but is absolutely powerless to move. If some dreadful thing were suddenly to happen, if a house were just about to fall on one, don't you know how one would long to sit down and shut one's eyes and wait and wait? Well, when this terrible feeling came over him, the priest quickly pressed the cross to his lips without a word, 
a little silver cross it was, and he kept on pressing it to the man's lips every second. And whenever the cross touched his lips, the eyes would open for a moment, and the legs moved once, and he kissed the cross greedily, hurriedly, just as though he were anxious to catch hold of something in case of its being useful to him afterwards, though he could hardly have had any connected religious thoughts at the time. And so up to the very block. How strange that criminals seldom swoon at such a moment! On the contrary, the brain is especially active, and works incessantly, probably hard, 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 like an engine at full pressure. I imagine that various thoughts must beat loud and fast through his head, all unfinished ones, and strange funny thoughts, very likely, like this, for instance. That man is looking at me, and he has a wart on his forehead, and the executioner has burst one of his buttons, and the lowest one is all rusty. And meanwhile he notices and remembers everything. There is one point that cannot be forgotten, round which everything else dances and turns about, and because of this point he cannot faint, and this lasts until the very final quarter of a second when the wretched neck is on the block, and the victim listens and waits, and knows. That's the point. He knows that he is just now about to die, and listens for the rasp of the iron above his head. If I lay there, I should certainly listen for that grating sound, and hear it too. There would probably be but the tenth part of an instant left to hear it in, but one would certainly hear it. And imagine some people declare that when the head flies off it is conscious of having flown off. Just imagine what a thing to realise. Fancy if consciousness were to last for even five seconds. Draw the scaffold so that only the top step of the ladder comes in clearly. The criminal must be just stepping on to it, his face as white as note-paper. The priest is holding the cross to his blue lips, and the criminal kisses it, and knows and sees and understands everything. The cross and the head. There's your picture. The priest and the executioner, with his two assistants, and a few heads and eyes below. Those might come in as subordinate accessories a sort of mist. There's a picture for you." The prince paused and looked around. "'Certainly that isn't much like quietism,' murmured Alexandra, half to herself. "'Now tell us about your love affairs,' said Adelaida, after a moment's pause. The prince gazed at her in amazement. You know, Adelaida continued, you owe us a description of the Baal picture, but first I wish to hear how you fell in love. Don't deny the fact, for you did, of course. Besides, you stop philosophizing when you are telling about anything. Why are you ashamed of your stories the moment after you have told them? asked Aglaya suddenly. How silly you are! said Mrs. Yepanchin, looking indignantly towards the last speaker. "'Yes, that wasn't a clever remark,' said Alexandra. 
don't listen to her prince said mrs epanchin she says that sort of thing out of mischief don't think anything of their nonsense it means nothing they love to chaff but they like you i can see it in their faces i know their faces i know their faces too said the prince with a peculiar stress on the words how so asked adelaida with curiosity what do you know about our faces exclaimed the other two in chorus but the prince was silent and serious all awaited his reply i'll tell you afterwards he said quietly ah you want to arouse our curiosity said aglaya and how terribly solemn you are about it very well interrupted adelaida then if you can read faces so well you must have been in love come now i've guessed let's have the secret i have not been in love said the prince as quietly and seriously as before i have been happy in another way how how well i'll tell you said the prince apparently in a deep reverie end of part 1 chapter 5 recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey